This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon and welcome to the August Eye on the Market audio slash video podcast. Uh, I am, I'm not really in San Francisco. That's just a, uh, a Zoom background, but I have this uh, fancy new microphone because uh, some of you have commented that the audio from my iPhone headphones is terrible. So I now have a uh, professional Edward R. Murrow style microphone. Um, and uh, you'll be able to see this on video um, if you're accessing it through our our website rather than the Spotify or uh, Apple podcast portal. Anyway, welcome to the uh, August Eye on the Market um, audio visual uh, extravaganza. So I, like everybody else, I'm somewhat surprised that despite four to 500 basis points of uh, tightening in the US and Europe and a very weak Chinese recovery, the equity markets are up uh, globally about 18% this year. Uh, and Q3 GDP looks like it's uh, globally going to hang in and still poised for around 2%. So uh, the reason I'm calling this the Rasputin recovery is, if you remember the legend around Rasputin, which is almost certainly false, but he was, I think, beaten, poisoned, shot twice, and then finally drowned before he dies. And it's a, it's a proxy for how I see the global economy right now, no matter what the central banks are throwing at it, it continues to exhibit some resilience. And the same goes for the equity markets as well. How can we explain this? Well, the obvious catalyst is the decline in inflation surprises. So uh, we've got a chart in here that shows for the US and globally what those uh, inflation surprises looked like just in the beginning of this year, and they have collapsed. And whether you're looking at core inflation, trimmed inflation, sticky price inflation, median inflation, um, and then a bunch of other measures related to supply chains and the jobs workers gap, uh, the inflation outlook has cooled more or less the way the Fed thought it should. It just took them another year or so before it started to happen. And um, and that's the obvious big catalyst. But I wanted to walk through six other important catalysts so that everybody understands where we are, why the markets are doing this well, and where we go from here. The I think the biggest surprise to some people has been this a chart that we have showing that in on seven prior occasions, every time the yield curve inverted, you had a recession. And it was almost automatic. And there were very few, if any, false signals where you had an inverted yield curve and you didn't get a recession. So we have a chart in here with these little red arrows showing that if you look at the yield curve inversion from three months to 10 years, it was a really consistent signal. And as you can see, the yield curve is mega inverted right now. And so I don't, but I don't think this is such a great signal this time around. And I've been explaining to clients this year when I've been meeting them that the reason why that inverted yield curve was such a successful signal, if you look back, was the, the yield curve was inverted, but that's because the short end of the curve uh, was really high relative to inflation. And if you look at a chart on the real cost of money associated with those yield curve inversions, you saw real cost of money 2%, 4%, 8%, maybe even 10%. This time around, the uh, the real cost of money is still barely positive. So I think it's premature to even look at this recession indicator inversion thing 
because the real cost of money this time around um, is barely positive at all. And it's a sign of just how uh, far behind the Fed got relative to inflation. The other thing, too, is if you're really into that kind of yield curve inversion always predicts a recession stuff, then you've got to look at the corporate sector financial balance, which is a kind of a broad measure of the profitability of the entire corporate sector, not just public companies, net of capital spending and, and, and other kinds of transfers. And in the past, you, you got a recession because that, that corporate sector financial balance went negative. This time around, it's still substantially positive. So if you're into kind of recession indicator tracking, uh, the corporate sector financial balance would offset the yield curve inversion signal, even if you believed it, which I don't. The second thing is, yes, the central banks are starting to take back some of the stimulus. But if you look broadly across the Fed and Europe and Japan and the Swiss National Bank, Canada, Bank of England, and then the, the relevant comparable entity within China, only around 35% of the emergency stimulus from a monetary perspective, perspective has been withdrawn. So there's still a lot of money sloshing around, and the real cost of money is not prohibitively high. Those are the first two takeaways in terms of why things are doing so well, despite 5% higher Fed funds rates than we started the year with. The third factor is fiscal stimulus. Um, uh, the And we have a chart here showing the spike, a really big spike in construction spending, not related to commercial real estate, but related to manufacturing. Uh, and that started to happen shortly after the, the semiconductor bill uh, and the energy bill and the infrastructure bills were passed. Um, there's a lot of money uh, getting spent here. And more broadly, this is the amazing part. The fiscal deficit in the United States is almost at lar as large as it was at its peak level in 2009 when we were, you know, when you had the global recession. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of monetary tightening taking place, but there's a lot of fiscal easing offsetting that. Uh, our partners in the investment bank, there's, they have a great economics team, and Mike Faroli and his team wrote a piece on uh, analyzing what's driving the U.S. deficit. And it's a lot of little bits and pieces, but lower income and payroll tax receipts, drop in remittances from the Federal Reserve to the Treasury, more cost of living adjustments, higher Medicaid and Medicare outlays higher interest on the federal debt. And then, of course, don't forget about the last one, which is increased FDIC payments to depositors after the bank failures that occurred earlier this year. But the bottom line is there's a lot of fiscal stimulus taking place. The fourth factor that has helped contribute to this Rasputin market and Rasputin economy is it's going to take a while for higher interest rates to feed into the corporate sector and the household sector. And so there's a chart in here, and I'll be honest with you, I can't tell you exactly why this is happening because it's remarkable, but it shows, we have a chart that shows that every time since the early 70s, when the Fed funds rate went up, in other words, when policy rates went up, corporate interest payments as a percentage of their profits went up too. This time, not only is that net interest payment for, uh, ratio not rising, it's still falling. And now there's a, there's a number of things that could be contributing to this, um, notably um, companies that have a lot of short-term uh, excess cash are reinvesting and earning higher rates. And those same companies 
uh, one can infer extended duration massively at the lows and rates, right? How ironic is it that the corporate sector understood the assignment when rates were, when 10-year rates were at one and a half, the corporate sector extended duration, whereas some of the banks who you would assume were experts in asset liability management, some of the banks, as you now know, extended their asset duration <laughs> at the lows and rates while the corporate sector got it right and extended their liability duration. I think it's kind of ironic. But um, you can see in this chart that the corporate sector is not really getting hit right now from higher interest rates. Most, you know, most certainly that has something to do with, with having, uh, they're having extended duration when rates were much lower. And same for the household sector. Look at the rate on outstanding mortgages. Um, you know, that, that rate has come down steadily and is now around, let's say, around 3.5%. So uh, in contrast to Europe, most homeowners in the United States uh, have fixed rate, long duration fixed rate mortgages. And while mortgages look prohibitively expensive for new home buyers, um, existing homeowners have locked in really low rates, which is one of the reasons why the debt service to, to income ratio of the U.S. household sector has gone up a little bit with higher rates, but is still close to the lowest levels that it's been at since 1980. So and not just the corporate sector has been resilient to higher rates, but also households. And housing's gotten hit pretty hard in terms of starts and permits and mortgage applications and the normal stuff that you'd look at. But but housing would have looked much worse if not for the fact that we have a a very tight inventory levels in terms of single single family homes. Uh, we have a chart in here showing that we're still close to the levels of the last you know forty years or so. Um, in terms of the supply of existing single family homes. So that tight supply. Now, there's all sorts of problems related to that in terms of productivity and employment and labor mobility. Uh, but this time around, it, it's made the housing markets more resilient than it might have been to rising interest rates. So if we step back and look at the U.S. consumer, in January of this year, the consensus forecasts were uh, a consumer-led recession by the summer. Uh, all of the factors I've just walked through have helped prevent that from happening so far. And now when you look at those same forecasts, the declines pushed out a little bit, but notably doesn't go negative on any kind of year-on-year uh, -year or quarter-on-quarter -quarter basis. So uh, the forecast of the, of the consumer slowdown has changed in terms of both timing and magnitude. And the other thing, and this gets discussed a lot, and, and I think it should, um, households are still burning off massive amounts of excess savings that they got during COVID uh, via, via both fiscal stimulus means and monetary stimulus means. Um, and we, here are three different forecasts from three different parts of JP Morgan we have in this chart, and they're all pointing to the same thing, which is sometime in 2024 that runs out. But that still gives you at least a few months of cushion uh, where households will have the ability to spend in excess of their earned income. Now, even with all of that, uh, just wait, right? The leading indicators are still projecting weakness this fall, Q4, Q1. Uh, we have a chart in here showing you can split leading indicators into coincident indicators, meaning the stuff that's happening now, and leading indicators, which is the stuff that's expected to happen in a few months. And the coincident indicators all look fine, whereas the leading indicators look still look pretty weak. And so 
we take a closer look than just at these aggregate baskets, and we track you know twenty or so long dated leading indicators that that give us a sense for what might be happening anywhere from three months to six months, nine months, twelve months. They don't look terrible. We have a color-coded table in the eye in the market that shows roughly what we're expecting based on each one. And there's a modest slowdown uh, expected later this year, early first quarter, that I would put at something like 1% growth rather than recession. Uh, But that does have implications for how large an equity market drawdown you might expect, even if there is one. Uh, and, And a lot of these signals look a lot less uh, uh, malevolent than they did a few months ago. Now, of course, the sixth, the last, and the, the sixth factor is um, what's been driving the market this year is uh, the return of risk appetite in a big way, right? So just be aware of that. This is not an earnings-led recovery. Uh, first of all, the market cap of the largest seven companies is at its highest level since the 1970s. It's, it's even narrower market leadership than during the TMT bubble during 2000. And you've all read about this. We've written about it before. Uh, the crowding and growth factor investing has reached the 97th percentile, uh, eclipsed only in the year 2000. There was a very good piece that the investment bank, uh, JP Morgan's investment bank put out last week uh, by the uh, US equity strategy team that gets into detail on this. Um, I cited in the eye in the market what, you know, the name of that piece in case you want to look at it. And for those of you that are fans of the eye in the market, just be aware the yucks are back. So we track the um, the percentage of overall market cap made up of the yucks, which are the young, young unprofitable companies. One of the signals that I wrote about a lot that I was very worried about where markets were valued in 2021 and early 2022 is how high this was. It corrected in 2022 in the fall, but now is going up again. And so just be aware, rising yuck shares of the overall market is, um, there's a reason we call it yuck. I'd rather, I'd rather not be seeing this in terms of how stable this rally is. And then I think the most important chart in some ways in, in the piece we have is one that looks at the, the rise in the valuation multiple on the PE, uh, you know, the PE ratio for the S&P compared to long-term earnings growth forecasts. Now, sometimes long-term earnings growth forecasts take a while to change. Um, corporate guidance and the analyst community have to kind of get on board and reflect what they're seeing. But undoubtedly, uh, the, the chart we've got here shows the valuation multiple has gone up almost four points, maybe three and a half points without any movement higher in long-term earnings growth forecasts. That's unusual. That doesn't happen a lot. And you know, th- there's no escaping the fact that there's a lot of good news priced into the markets right now and not a lot of room for negative developments should they come from Russia-Ukraine war, global energy and food prices or, or anything else. So uh, I-, I think there's a reasonable foundation for the rally that's taken place this year because inflation has outperformed almost everybody's forecasts in terms of how quickly it would fall. Wage inflation is, is, is declining a little bit more slowly. And a lot of people were underinvested at the end of 2022. They added risk. I get it. Uh, but I think it's important to understand exactly where we are at this point uh, in a uh, kind of earningless uh, appreciation cycle that's taking place in a handful of stocks. So um, 
just a couple more things. First, I think this is the best time for risk-averse investors in 20 years. So why do I say that? We have a chart at the end of the piece that looks at the earnings yield on the S&P, which is basically earnings divided by price. And we compare that to the, to the short-term returns on corporate bonds and treasuries. And they've all converged to somewhere around five to five and a half percent. The last time you earned more money on treasuries than you did on equities was in early 2000. So uh, it's been over 20 years since uh, a risk-averse investor um, could look at, at the fixed income markets and consider them roughly comparable in earnable yield terms compared to equities. And that's where we are right now. So um, one last thing I wanted to mention, and I hope I'm not running out of time, but um, I normally, I don't do any press. I, I, I don't have a lot of uh, time for that. And, um, and our compliance people generally get very nervous when I'm put in front of press people, but, uh, which, which, which I can understand. But um, I agreed to do this video podcast of uh, some, a money manager called Josh Brown. And he, he does an in-depth 90-minute uh, video podcast a couple times a month. And I joined over the summer. And the reason I'm mentioning it is uh, at the end of the podcast, he asks the people that join that and for that session to name a book and a movie that they liked. And... I started thinking about Bidenomics, which is essentially the United States having an industrial policy for the first time, uh, really in 50, 60 years. And there's a lot of money that's going to be spent in terms of direct government spending or tax expenditures uh, on, on you know, infrastructure, energy, semiconductors. I have questions about the long-term inflationary consequences here. Um, how much will it eventually cost to produce semiconductors in Arizona versus Taiwan? Uh, what's going to be the cost of energy once you have both the cost of storage and backup thermal power uh, added on to uh, the cost of a high renewable system? You know, things we explore in the energy paper. So I've got some questions about the inflationary consequences of this. But one thing I am optimistic on is the ability for Bidenomics to reverse some of the damage that was done to manufacturing communities in the United States um, after China joined the World Trade Organization. I, I showed some research a couple of years ago then after China joined the WTO and in started engaging in, in currency intervention, US manufacturing employment and wages plummeted and, um, and opioid use started rising specifically in the counties that had the most intense uh, competitive economic pressures with China. And um, so uh, I am hopeful that the battery belt and uh, th that will stretch from Georgia up to Michigan and some of the other monies that get spent here alleviate some of the pain and suffering in those communities. And on the podcast, um, I, I mentioned the book Empire of Pain uh, about the history of the opioid crisis and the family behind it. And I mentioned the movie, The Third Man with Orson Welles, because there's a scene where he's explaining his justification for his tainted penicillin scheme. And I thought that that was a nice way to wrap the whole message up uh, together. Anyway, thank you for listening slash watching. I hope this all worked and we'll see you sometime in September. Thank you. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, 
Current Events, Markets and Investment Portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.